News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We hear all the time uh, about uh, child care issues, right? It seems fitting, actually, on this family day to talk about the issue of child care, too. Uh, we've been doing this for weeks now, too. What's clear is that it's all changing. Government subsidies, better training, more money for employees, more demand for spaces too. So you're getting more and more childcare centers opening up. And you're definitely hearing about centers that are opening multiple locations. So the question now is, is childcare becoming a business? And is that a good thing? or a bad thing? How did we get to this place? So to talk more about that this morning, we're joined by Dr. Kathleen Kuman, who's the Chair of Education and Childhood Studies at Capilano University and the co-director of the BC Early Childhood Pedagogy Network. Dr. Kuman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. How did we get to this place, though, where we are talking about childcare as a business? Um, I think that we got to this place because we got caught up in um, an economic concern. How do we get people to work? How do we look after children? Instead of asking the question, um, how do we provide for our youngest citizens educational spaces? Can we fix this, do you think? Or does it, it does feel like we're kind of on the road to making this a very business-like thing. It does. And there are many scholars, I mean, the article was written by myself, Dr. Nicole Land at um, Metropolitan Toronto University and um, all of our colleagues with the Early Childhood Collaboratory across at universities engaged in um, looking at childhood studies across Canada. And, you know, we are on a, we are definitely, you know, probably heading in a difficult situation, but we can always change because we can stop and ask ourselves questions. What kind of world do we want for children? What kind of world do we want for ourselves? What is the difference, do you think, between us asking those questions and not asking those questions and letting things continue on the way they are? Then if we don't ask the question, then economics and the drive for a service business industry will answer them. And that seems to be what's happening right now. So is there, what are, I guess I should say, what are your concerns then with having a child care system where people are opening up centers as businesses? What is, what is the difference there, do you think? Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, information, particularly there's um, a scholar in Britain, Peter Moss, who's written a lot. And he said, you know, when something becomes a service, a business, then the questions, the concerns are about how do we make this business profitable? How do we do this in a business sort of way? What are the questions of business as opposed to what are the questions of education? And when we sort of ask questions of education, then we think about what kinds of worlds do we want for children? What are the dispositions that we want to be nurturing in our very youngest citizens? And what and who needs to be walking alongside children and families, meeting the concerns of the 21st century and their lives? The questions become completely different. So, you know, sorry. I was just going to say, I guess it's a bit of a new frontier, isn't it? It's because we've never done anything like this before. Absolutely. 
absolutely. And the problem is we're thinking with all of what we know before, instead of recognizing we're in the 21st century. We just live through COVID. We live, we're living through new challenges and new conditions. And so how do we respond to those conditions? And how do we look at our youngest citizens and not give them today, but say, okay, how do we create conditions for you to flourish in a world that we don't even know what's going to be? Well, how, how do we do that then? How do we encourage people to open up child care centers that aren't perhaps business-like? Well, in our article, uh, we, you know, we talk about first changing the language. I mean, early childhood education just even invites a different conversation than child care. We always, in education, have to be involved in a caring relationship. Education is a relationship of care, of thinking about the world together. But when we say the words early childhood education, we all of a sudden start to talk differently. We have doggy daycares. We have, you know, think about the words we use. And we begin to think about how do we want to spend public dollars? You know, when government is making these decisions, do we want the money to go to people who, as a business person, should be making business decisions? I mean, that's the point of a business. Or do we want the money to be going to agencies, individuals who are making educational curriculum decisions? How do we make that happen, though? Is that something that we say, okay, it's going to be an extension of, say, our education system? Well, we already moved into that ministry so that in BC, so that might be a, a good start. And again, you know, because I don't want to become part of an argument of this is the right way, it's rather it's asking ourselves, where do you want your public dollars to go? What is the point of this project? We, Nicole Land and the people that I wrote this article with, we see it as a project, a public project, a political project, a project of education in which the concern on Family Day is actually not business, but young children and their families. It's so hard, though, Dr. Kerman, isn't it? Because families, parents are just some, I think in most cases, are just so thrilled to actually find a place for their child Absolutely. that perhaps they don't ask all those questions. Absolutely. And as a parent a while ago, not now, but, you know, who is paying for the space in childcare, the $10 a day, you know, initiative is amazing. And so I, I we're not critiquing this because we actually think many of these steps are in the right mood, but it's how do we move forward now? How do we start to make the hard decisions? Because, Parents and young children deserve not just spaces, but they deserve livable spaces. And they deserve that in the name of the fact that these are citizens. They deserve quality early childhood spaces. Can you recommend something for parents here? Just maybe some questions to ask, things that they need to think about. Um, I think that, you know, it's, One, I want to honor the fact that as all parents, as a parent, when you're looking for early childhood, sometimes you don't have the luxury and it's a privilege to ask those questions. 
but to think about what are the children engaged in in the day? What are the commitments that the educators have, that the program has? What, how do they understand the project of early childhood education? Those are all good questions to ask. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate that. Well, thank you very much for having me. Have a lovely family day. You too. That's Dr. Kathleen Kuman, who's the Chair of Education and Childhood Studies at Capilano University. And she's co-written a paper talking about whether or not childcare has almost become too business-like. Businesses are definitely getting into it. There are childcare centers that are run like businesses. But I guess the question that they're asking is, is this the right approach? Now, if you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Drink the water. Seems like a simple thing, but that is what residents of East Palestine, Ohio, are demanding of their government officials. Drink the water and prove it is safe. Residents have complained about rashes, about headaches, about nausea. Two weeks after a train carrying vinyl chloride derailed in this town of about 5,000 people. Well, how bad is it right now and what's going on? Well, for the latest on this, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our Global Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what is the situation like right now for that town? Well, I mean, look, as you just said, uh, officials uh, from uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, both federally and at the state level, uh, are telling residents that the air is safe to breathe, the water is safe to drink, uh, but there are concerns. There is uh, a bit of unease amongst these residents who have been told that they can come home. As you mentioned, there are some people that are complaining uh, of, of ailments that they have suffered over the last two weeks after uh, these you know, chemicals were not only released into the atmosphere via the derailment, but also from the controlled burn. And there is a growing bit of skepticism when it comes to the federal response to this, because there are members from within this community saying, look, we need uh, more to be done. We need the White House to act. But the White House is not acting. And why is that? So what kind of help are they getting? So, look, uh, you know, I say the White House isn't acting and they're not acting in that a declaration uh, of disaster has not been made. But the White House is providing assistance by way of the Centers for Disease Control and Health and Human Services uh, and the Environmental Protection Agency. All of them are kind of using a multi-pronged approach to deal with this. But FEMA is not being fully activated by the White House for a couple of different reasons. Number one, this doesn't meet the legal requirements under the Stafford Act for a disaster to be declared. But number two, that can only happen if the governor of the state makes that request of the White House. And that hasn't happened yet. We heard Mike DeWine uh, late last week uh, into Saturday morning saying that they've filed the paperwork and they will reserve the rights just in case they need FEMA. But because FEMA usually goes out to natural disasters and this is a man-made chemical crisis, they don't feel that FEMA might be the best to deal with this. So ultimately, you have a federal response that is falling short in the eyes of some residents and residents who are saying, look, both the federal government, the state level and the train operator need to be doing something more for us. Yeah. What do we know about the state, the train operator at this point? Well, so look, Norfolk Southern, uh, it's interesting, in January held a an earnings call uh, with shareholders, and they acknowledged that they have seen accidents and incidents within their own company increase over the last four years. It's also worth pointing out here that during the Trump administration, there were lobbying efforts underway, including from Norfolk Southern, to roll back some legislation linked to train safety, including uh, increasing the number of crews that would be on a train. So ultimately, you have 
have profits superseding safety here. The company was in East Palestine, uh, Palestine last week. They did not go to um, uh, kind of a community meeting. Rather, they met with local officials, fearful of what kind of retribution they might get or retaliation uh, might be there. They are giving $1,000 to each resident who has been impacted as an inconvenience fee, but there are some people who may not be able to ever return home, and there are calls here for Norfolk Southern to do far more. And I understand they're also, they've been doing testing or not testing, I guess, some of the, the wildlife in the area, right? Yeah, I mean, look, well, wildlife has has kind of taken bore the, the biggest brunt of this. There are thousands upon thousands of fish and animals have already died because of uh, the initial spill and how this impacted the waterway, even though they say the water uh, is free. You know, there's only so much testing they'll be able to do of, of, you know, what's not the air and the water in and around that site. But ultimately here, the fact that you had these noxious fumes and chemicals released into the air, they're saying that things are okay, and they say that testing is going to continue. That may, you know, it may not sit well with these residents who say, look, there could be things in the walls in our house now. There could be things that are latched onto the soft surfaces in and around this community that could pose problems down the road. So ultimately, you have the state saying, look, we're doing what we can. We also uh, have the federal government saying that we are going to stay with you. But these residents are saying, look, you can stand with us all you want, but that might not be enough. And we don't feel safe and they don't know what they can do next. Reggie, is this story starting to gain more traction in the United States now? Because I know that it felt like it wasn't high up enough the first time I read about it. I thought, well, this is horrific, but it wasn't getting enough attention. Well, I mean, look, it's been more than two weeks that this happened. And while it has been in the news, obviously, it depends on what the cycle is. It depends on what goes on. I think what this is doing, though, is drawing closer attention to train safety around the United States. This is not the first derailment. Obviously, we hear Norfolk Southern saying that they've had an increase uh, in incidents over the last four years. There have been a significant number of train derailments over the last several years, many of them having um, an impact on the environment. So there is um, a push here to try and get lawmakers to do more when it comes to rail safety. What they find themselves, though, is up against the lobby. Uh, And if the lobby pushes back or spends enough money, that can keep safety, you know, second tier or at least back on the back burner and then these things don't kind of come back to the news until the next derailment happens which starts that conversation of what could we have done to stop this it's the same thing when it comes to gun violence it's in the news when it happens it kind of takes a back burner and then when it happens again the conversation is well what are we supposed to do exactly these residents i'm sure feel like they've been left alone on this Uh, reggie thank you Thank you. That's Reggie Giacchini, our Global Washington correspondent, bringing us up to date on that train derailment. And really, it was the train derailment and the chemicals and then the controlled burn or so-called controlled burn that they did afterwards that caused this kind of toxic cloud to hang over this town of 5,000 people, which is really what led people to be evacuated and then allowed back home. But they're saying there's like thousands of dead fish in the streams. There's concerns about wildlife. And honestly, I don't blame the residents at all for saying, I'm not drinking this water. Like they need to know it is uh, healthy for them to do so. And so that is still happening. Apparently residents there are also now hiring their own testing because they're saying they don't they don't believe what they are actually being told. Uh, there's some residents who say, listen, they've, they've seen air monitoring teams come in, but they don't feel like they're staying long enough to really get a good measurement about what is going on there. So now they're hiring independent contractors 
to find out why they're still getting this smell inside and outside in their community. I mean, there's a lot of mistrust going on right near right now between residents and not just Norfolk Southern, but also the state government and local officials. And it's just a very, very messy, awful situation uh, for residents in that community. It's terrible there. We'll continue to uh, follow that story. This is Mornings with Simi. We hear all the time about labour shortages and the answer always seems to be, well, we need to bring more people into Canada to help out. The latest immigration plan from the federal government calls for one and a half million people to become permanent residents between now and 2025. But are we ready for that? Is Canadian society ready to amalgamate and make all of those arrivals welcome and part of the fabric of Canada? And is that fair to the people who will come here if we are not ready? Well, Thamriz Khan is with us now to talk more about this. She has written extensively about this issue. She's an international development expert and co-editor of the article White Saviorism and International Development Theories, Practices and Lived Experiences. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Sammy. Good to be here. Do you think Canada is ready for this kind of immigration plan? Short answer, uh, probably not. Long answer, why not? Um, because it's not just simply about immigration. So it's not simply about bringing in millions of people into the country and thinking you're good. Um, it's about what are you going to do with them? A lot of these kind of people, most of them, majority of them, are coming to Canada because they want to rebuild their lives. They want to start new lives. They want new lives for their children and for their future generations. So they have plans and expectations as well. Um, obviously, they want jobs, they want education, they want social services. But the whole idea of treating them as if they are simply numbers that are going to increase or enhance Canada's demographics is not the right way of looking at it, because then you're really ignoring the basic needs of, of individuals and peoples and families who want to make this their new home. So I think it's not just about numbers. If you want to increase immigration massively, you're going to have to put a lot of weight behind that as well in other sectors like education and health and employment and equal opportunities as well. So I think short answer, no, Canada's not ready yet because I don't think we've been addressing these all these other issues when it comes to uh, immigration. I could see your point on that. So we say we want people to come here and help us with jobs, but there hasn't really been much discussion about all of these other issues. For instance, where is everyone going to live? Is there room for people? Is there is there room in our schools? Do we have the facilities available? Exactly. And uh, that's not a difficult thing to do if, uh, you know, these sectors really start looking at this as a holistic effort, you know, not just as a, a piecemeal effort. Uh, but saying we, we talk about integration. Well, integration is not just cultural integration. It's economic integration. It's uh, educational integration. It's health integration. We want everybody to have the same level of services as Canadians. But are we able to provide that? I mean, we've seen the situation uh, in our health sector post-COVID um, that it's just not able to cope with, uh, you know, with the demand that it has in country at the moment. How are we going to cope with millions of other people coming in with, you know, different sets of requirements? Same in the education sector, same in the employment sector. I know my experience as an immigrant in Canada when it came to employment particularly was very tough. Um, it took me years to be accepted um, as somebody who was equally qualified, and it took me much longer to actually integrate myself into the job market. Um, and even that was a partial success due to many reasons. 
So I think uh, there's a lot of thinking that needs to be put in behind these numbers. Do we see any of that thinking being done? I don't think so at a personal level. From what I see, the way health and education priorities, for instance, or even employment priorities are being managed at the moment, um, there's a lot of talk about racial discrimination, for instance, in a lot of these sectors, particularly employment. And we've got a lot of evidence to that as well. A lot of statistics and numbers that say, uh, you know, racially, uh, racially uh, marginalized people or racialized immigrants in Canada are not getting the same opportunities as Native Canadians. So I think, I don't think we're actually addressing that directly. I think there's still a bit of a denial when it comes to that. And I think that's the hump we need to get over. Others are really not going to be able to address these issues. And does it also say something about us in terms of the way we view immigration to this country? Like we view it as people to take jobs. Yes, absolutely. I think this narrative that's being set that... Uh, you know, uh, the demographics in Canada are now an aging demographic, so we need more younger people to come in and, and take up jobs, or that um, we just don't have enough people in the country, so we need more people, and immigration is the answer. I don't think it's, I mean, if you start looking at people in that way, then you're really not looking at people as people. You're not looking at integration at all. You're basically saying we have X number of jobs we need to fill. We need X number of people to fill them. Let's bring them in. Uh, we're not even seeing where we're bringing them in from, what challenges they already have uh, before coming into the country, what challenges they will face once they come into the country. We're talking about people from all over the world. We're not talking about a homogenic, uh, homogeneous group of people. So I think um, that level of thinking and that approach is, is, is not, um, I don't think it's conducive to a very uh, hospitable environment or a welcoming environment. And I think immigration policy needs to look at those issues much more critically than it does that, you know, what are our labor shortages in the country and how many people do we need to get our demographics up? Hmm. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for this discussion today. Not at all. Thank you for having me on. That's Thamiris Khan, who's an international development expert and has written extensively about the impact of immigration and essentially getting ready for immigrants. It's one thing to say, we're going to have this many people come to Canada because we have this many jobs to fill. But as we have seen, what other impacts are there? There is housing, there is schooling, there is community supports, and we need to make sure all of that has the room to accommodate more people so that they also get the best experience from this, not just come here, take a job, and then can't find a place to live. And, you know, that's tough for everybody. We we heard actually the B.C. government recently start talking about this, that the federal government is going to set immigration targets, then B.C. needs to receive more money in housing supports from the federal government in order to make room for the people who clearly make B.C. and want to make B.C. as their destination, right? Definitely more to talk about on that front. This is Mornings with Simi. The 9.5% tax hike is all due to the transition. You may remember, right at the beginning, we asked the Surrey Police Service to stop spending. They chose not to. So we're in a place where we have to rectify. Okay, that is Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke talking about the potential for tax increases. And remember, take everything that politicians say here with a grain of salt, a big one, a boulder even. 
because the Surrey Police Service could not just stop spending money. They were contractually obligated to continue moving forward until they were officially told by the provincial government otherwise. So that's why things are headed towards this, I feel like, showdown with Surrey residents, because now we hear that that 9.5% property tax increase she's talking about there is just for the cost of the police transition. When you factor in inflation and the regular property tax increase and all of that, you're looking, Surrey residents, at more like 17.5%. And that's not just for this year. That's talking about a big increase for the next three years to pay for the costs associated with this police transition. Now, we did request to speak with Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke, not available this morning. Sounds like she will be on with Jazz Joe Hall this afternoon, though. So you want to hear what she has to say. But in the meantime, let's talk to Linda Anna, Surrey City Councillor, to talk more about this. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Simi. What do we know about this number and where it comes from? Is this realistic at this point? Well, I don't know. You know, we've had such an amount of difficulties trying to get the real numbers of what it costs to wind down the transition or to move forward with the police transition. For example, uh, in this uh, particular budget, there's $85 million for uh, severance for the officers at the Surrey Police Service. Well, how do we know what that number would be? We don't know how many officers would leave and uh, you know, go over to the RCMP. We don't know how many may just retire or go back to their own police forces. There's so many unknowns. I just feel this whole budget is just grasping at straws. There's so many assumptions. Okay, so when will Surrey residents be able to get a more clear picture of this? Well, this is, looks like uh, what we're presenting to the residents, which I'm not happy with. I'm very concerned that our residents in Surrey are going to be faced with a tax increase for an average single-family home of $400 this year. I mean, that's just inexcusable, particularly in these huge inflationary times. Now, was there any indication given to Surrey councillors about what might be more realistic? Did you discuss different scenarios? Well, really, um, it's, it, this has been smoke and mirrors for the, from the get-go. When I first got elected or re-elected, I should say, uh, I was asking that an independent auditor come in and really look at the books because when you talk to the Surrey Police Service, you talk to the RCMP, you talk to the city, and you talk to the mayor, you get four sets of different numbers. So what are the real numbers? We need somebody to come forward and sort this out for us once and for all. It's become such a divisive issue in Surrey. Isn't it too late for that? now though like wouldn't bringing in an auditor now just delay things even more well i would rather delay things and get things right why rush things through for expediency's sake Uh, better we do it right the first time Uh, this is a huge undertaking no matter which way we go you know it's probably it certainly is the biggest decision that i will make financially as a city councillor and i think we need to get it right You were a councillor as well in the last administration with uh, former Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. And during that time, I seem to remember the problem was that the numbers were coming in too low. And I know we talked about that at that time, too. Were those numbers not realistic? Well, there was two parts to what uh, Doug McCallum did. He held the general operating at 2.9% and increase the infamous parcel tax from $1 to $300. So in actual fact, uh, he did increase the taxes a lot more. Uh, The problem was, is much of the increases of the taxes went to the Surrey Police Service or to building projects. So it's left the city in a bit of 
of state of disarray. Our roads, you know, are in bad condition. We don't have enough infrastructure. So, you know, this is why we've got a 17.5% tax increase. Of course, 9% of that is to fund the detransition, if you will, of uh, the Surrey Police Service, if indeed that even happens. How far behind do you think the community is right now? And I know that Surrey desperately needs a lot of things, including community centers. Uh, and you talked about roads and all that. Do you feel like the city is falling behind? I absolutely do. You know, the city is growing so quickly. Uh, I've been in elected office now for just over four years. And since then, almost 50,000 people have moved to Surrey and we're not keeping up with the population. So what are the next steps here in terms of, I know this is a big number for people to try to figure out. 17.5% is a huge increase. What are the next steps? Well, right now the city is communicating to all of the residents of Surrey exactly what this will look like for them. I would invite the residents to visit the Surrey website and have a good look at uh, uh, what the proposal is for our 2023-2027 budget. And then there will be a public hearing uh, uh, in just a couple of weeks, and I would ask, you know, welcome people to either attend it or make their submissions. Okay, and do you feel that that's a meeting that could get contentious? Well, I think it will. I mean, not many people, you know, can afford a $400 tax increase in these, you know, very high inflationary times. And as we know, you know, one of the attractions for Surrey is that it's a more affordable place to live. And if we're now going to be charging our residents $400 more in tax, and that's just for an average home, uh, it's problematic. So I think people will have a lot to say about it. I'll bet they will. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. That's Linda Annis, Surrey City Councillor, talking about this proposed uh, tax increase for Surrey residents. We'll hear more about this later this morning. We are also going to be speaking with someone from the Keep the RCMP in Surrey organization where they feel like some of this money does need to be spent. And they'll say, you know, is it is it money well spent? We'll hear from them on that. But let me break it down for you out there, Surrey residents, if you think this is crazy, this amount of money. So 9.5% general property tax increase to fund the policing shortfall. This is what the city of Surrey is saying. That is approximately $219 for the average single family home. Okay, that's one thing. Then a 7% general property tax increase. This is approximately $161. And that goes for general inflationary pressures, the hiring of an additional 25 police officers, 20 firefighters, and 10 bylaw officers for 2023, and other assorted citywide operations, and a 1% roads and traffic levy. That's approximately $23 for the average single-family home. So add that all up, and you've got your 17.5%. That is a huge a tax increase for people out there. And they're saying, you know what, the city's portion of property taxes for the average assessed single family home in the city of Surrey uh, would be, according to the city's website, uh, about the middle in terms of homes in Metro Vancouver and communities in Metro Vancouver. They say that would put Surrey in about the, in the middle of that pack there. But you know what? <laughs> like that's small comfort to Surrey residents, to homeowners in Surrey, property owners in Surrey who are potentially looking at a $400 or so increase with everything else that is also increasing out there. So Surrey residents, let's hear from you on this. 
You heard it. You're going to get a chance to weigh in. There will be a public hearing on this proposed budget. It's the general operating and capital budget that is being proposed. for. It's a four-year process, so 2023 to 2027 is what this is going to be in for. What would you tell your mayor and council? Let us know. You can call or text our buzz line, 604-331-2899, or you can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Before we got to this budget, that we would have an independent person have a look to be sure that whether we transition back to the RCMP or move forward with the Surrey Police Service, that we're working with numbers that don't have so many assumptions in them. All right, that is Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis. Now, we did talk to her about half an hour or so ago about the situation that Surrey residents are potentially facing right now, that they heard from Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke that the city will be debating and talking about their proposed budget for 2023 through to 2027. And for the first year alone, potentially you're looking at a 17.5% property tax increase. That is huge. About nine and a half percent of that will be for the policing transition. And then there's inflationary costs, regular salary increases and everything else. It just totals up to a huge amount, about $400 or so uh, per Surrey property owner. That's a big increase in one year. So what is going on with this here? And that is like, even if you're going to keep the RCMP, it sounds like. So to talk more about this, Paul Danes joins us now, member of Keep the RCMP in Surrey. Paul, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Is this a realistic, do you think, amount of money? Like, what did you think when you heard this news? Well, I, like everyone else in Surrey who pays property taxes, I'm you know somewhat shocked. It wasn't uh, entirely unexpected. Um, certainly the key message for me is that uh, this is going to cost, even with this um, um, massive increase uh, in taxes, uh, $235 million less uh, to operate under the um, uh, RCMP as police of jurisdiction. So that's a, that's a big plus for me. Right. But even, even if you go back to the RCMP in Surrey, there's still going to be a big property tax increase. Yes, there is. And I think, you know, I want to be upfront here that in my opinion and the opinion of our organization, this mess is 100 percent due to the mismanagement of two individuals. First of all, uh, the last mayor, Doug McCallum, um, his management of this from day one has been appalling. Everything's been conducted in secrecy. There's been no openness, no transparency. Secondly, the um, vagueness around some of the costs is also in ju- also due to the Surrey Police Board signing off on a gold-plated collective bargaining agreement conducted in secret with no input from the public whatsoever, which involves, amongst other things, 18 months severance um, for, for uh, any, any SPS officer subsequently laid off by a future mayor and council. No input from the public None whatsoever. So um, that is unheard of in, in, in police agencies across Canada. Indeed, from organized labor people that we've spoken to, that's, that's also unheard of uh, with, with most large organized labor um, organizations as well. Right. But given, uh, given the way the situation you know, was unfolding and how tenuous it seemed, do you think that was necessary to even get people to take the job, to attract people? Yes, I think, I think uh, that was part of the reason. They've, the, the SPS have certainly um, had a challenge hiring frontline officers, 
less so attracting middle senior management who spend most of their day sitting in offices twiddling their thumbs or across the road in the pond restaurant cafe. Uh, so there's two, two, two aspects there. They right. definitely Paul, had a problem hiring well, frontline operatives. Let me ask you this, Paul. Do you think an audit, an independent audit at this point would be helpful so that you talked about openness and transparency there, so we all know exactly what is costing what? Yeah, um, I, I, I obviously heard the, the comments of your previous guest, uh, Councillor Linda Amis, uh, saying that, uh, you know, we need independent analysis. It's absolutely, absolute nonsense. Um, the figures are fully there. Um, the mayor, council, and uh, the chair of the finance committee, Councillor Kuna, have made every effort to try to elicit from Councillor um, Anis exactly what she wants, to, uh, what information she needs. She seems to be totally incapable or unable, unwilling. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul, here. Even the provincial government is saying that everybody's numbers seem to be different on this here. It's Uh, not just one person saying that. Well, um, Linda Annis was your guest, and I'm I'm referring to to her in this instance. The bottom line is, is that the information is all there, but there are some variables, and they're primarily caused by the SPS police chief, Lipinski. He refused point blank to cease hiring and major capital uh, expenditures when asked to do so by the chair of the police board and Mayor Locke, um, and, and uh, basically has racked up um, millions more in, in capital costs for the SPS, which the taxpayer ultimately is going to have to pay for. Well, um, I, w- I think the argument there is that he was doing what he was told and hired to do at that point. But let me ask you this, Paul. What do you say to Surrey residents who at this point are looking at a 17.5% increase, regardless of who polices them in Surrey? Well, it's going to, I, I would say to them, it's going to cost $235 million minimum more to go with the Surrey Police Service. Unfortunately, we have to bite the bullet and pay for the extravagant costs and expenditures undertaken by Mayor McCallum and the SPS. It's unfortunate, but that's, that's the way it is. So it's, um, some people are going to find that very uncomfortable. I do, personally. I, I find it uh, you know, horrific that I'm going to have to pay extra taxes, as do most people in Surrey. But it's, uh, do you want to pay more or do you want to pay less? How do you feel about the upcoming provincial decision on this? Do you have a sense of how this is going to go? Well, I think the, the comments that were made by Premier Eby on his recent visit to Surrey, that uh, he recognises this is a huge issue for the people of Surrey. And he also recognised that ultimately it's, this is who polices our community or any municipality in BC is ultimately a decision for the mayor and council. We believe, we think and we hope He's going to respect the democratic wish of the people and the vote by the uh, new mayor and council to keep the RCMP in Surrey. Uh, clearly, they still have to satisfy themselves that public safety is, is paramount. Uh, we would say get on with it, but you know, we recognize at the same time they've got a job to do. All right. Well, listen, thank you for your time this morning. Okay, you're welcome, Simi. Appreciate that. Paul Danes is a member of Keep the RCMP in Surrey, talking about that proposed 17.5% increase for Surrey property taxpayers. That is huge, right? 9.5% of that is going to policing transition costs or proposed to go to that. And that is regardless of whichever way this decision goes. So it's 9.5% of an increase 
even if you keep the RSAMP or even if you proceed to the Surrey Police Service. And 7% is about uh, the inflationary costs and hiring new officers and hiring new firefighters and hiring more bylaw officers. And then 1% is for roads and other infrastructure upkeep. So total, 17.5%. Surrey residents, I can imagine you must feel a lot of shock over that. I think over the next few weeks, we're going to hear from other communities that are also facing property tax increases, but probably 5, 6, 7%. In Surrey, it's double digits, and that is huge. So if you want to weigh in on that, absolutely. Let's hear from you. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line, 604-331-2899. And I believe that Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke will be on with Jazz Joe Hall this afternoon to talk about this. So yes, you can imagine there'll be a lot more to come on that front. But yeah, keep those calls, thoughts, comments coming on this topic because yeah, that's a huge increase for people to swallow. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, if you are a true crime aficionado like me, then you'll recognize that music right there, right? It is from the true crime podcast that really started a revolution called Serial, of course. It originally, the first season, investigated the grisly murder of a 19-year-old Heyman Lee. That was a story that unexpectedly prompted just this explosion in true crime podcasts to show up all over the place. And one of the most popular is one called... My favorite murder. so weird, right? That that's actually a podcast that talks about murder and true crime. Uh, and actually, that is one that our next guest got very interested in because most of the hosts are women and most of the listeners are women. So why is that? Well, our guest is Dr. Kathleen Rogers, a professor at the University of the Fraser Valley School of Culture, Media and Society. And her research focuses on why it is that women are so drawn to true crime. Well, Dr. Rogers, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this this morning. Full confession right off the bat, I am one of these people that you are talking about. Oh, that's great. Thanks for inviting me. What has happened to me? Why am I such a fan? <laughs> well, um, I think, you know, before, before um, true crime podcasts were a thing, women were just a lot more likely to consume true crime in general, books and TVs and documentaries. It's just that the podcast genre has really led to this explosion of opportunities for listening. And I was interested in the same question. Why are women so fascinated by stories of serial killers and sexual assault and kidnapping? I mean, it's a little bit counterintuitive that we're interested in this. But when I've asked women what it is that fascinates them, they have some pretty consistent responses. I don't know if this will answer your question about you, but they have some pretty consistent responses. <laughs> what are those? Well, part of it is just basic human fascination. I mean, we're talking about, often talking about monsters. People like stories and true crime stories are some of the best, you know, crime and villains, and especially people like when those individuals are caught and punished. We like that a lot. But women also talk about liking true crime because it prepares them for what they would do if they were ever in a dangerous situation. So there's this element of feeling like, okay, so these are the situations I need to avoid. 
these are the ways I need to think and to act, which sounds a little bit like victim blaming, but it's one of the things I heard from women was that they like talking about why women become victims in the first place and the kinds of things that they can do to stop that from happening. Okay, I can see this. I understand this because I feel like a lot of times when you're watching, it's more like a there by the grace of God go I, right? Like you're thinking, thank goodness this never happened to me and and maybe I I want to learn something. Right, like, oh, I've been in a situation very similar to that, um, and how did she end up in that situation and I didn't. So, yeah, that's one of the common reasons. But I would say the most common reason that women give when I talk to them about why they listen to true crime is that it really taps into fears that they have about random violent crime happening to them. So being abducted by strangers to ending up locked in a basement somewhere. And even though most women are well aware that most violence happens in the home, that true crime confirms for us that that kind of random crime could still happen to us. Like, see, this is still a real possibility. And those are our worst nightmares for us, for our children. True crime really kind of taps into that fear. And there's just been a huge explosion in these, right? Whether it's, I mean, there's entire channels yeah. that are devoted to true crime. And now then podcasts yeah. as well, they, they seem to grow like crazy. You got really involved in talking to the commun- the, the online fan communities, didn't you? Yes. Well, more so, more so, I spend a fair amount of time just uh, on in the social media fan communities, paying attention to what was going on, which is how I started this in the first place. I never had any intention to work on true crime, but I just found what was happening, the conversations that were happening around women in true crime in particular were really interesting. Right. And so what did you find about how, how people process that information? Because some of it is just, it's quite violent. Um how they process it. Um, Well, I think that the social media spaces are one of the main ways that they, they process it, that they spend, people spend a fair amount of time there doing things ranging from talking about the details of cases and hoping to solve them to also talking about the podcast themselves and the hosts um, to talking about, larger conversations about, you know, why do we put ourselves in this situation? How can we prevent this from happening? Uh, what kind of things can we change that prevent women from being targets of violence? Um, so I think those social media spaces have been really important for letting people talk about those issues that they might not have had the opportunity to talk about before. Right. And they can also find other people who have the kind of same interest and fascination that they do. Yes, definitely. That's the case. A lot of, um, a lot of kind of, so there's a lot of conversations that happen on social media, but out of those conversations and networks, uh, people have made friends and have had groups that meet in person. And yeah, there's lots of, lots of opportunities for that sort of uh, growth and friendship and support. Dr. Rogers, do you think it's also about control as well? Is there an element to women perhaps feeling like they're taking a bit more control of that narrative? The narrative that that is in podcasts, you mean, or for themselves? Like for themselves in terms of personal safety and how to stay safe. Is it by perhaps, do they feel like they're educating themselves? That is definitely something I heard from women is, yeah, that it, it prepares them for what they would do. And so one of the podcasts that I was looking at, for instance, was one of the first and the biggest was My Favorite Murder. And the show's tagline is stay sexy and don't get murder and the conversation that people have had around that is that women are conscious of this threat of violence 
perhaps overly conscious sometimes, and but they need to be on guard and take their safety into their own hands. So, yeah, control um, and avoiding those situations that put them at risk is a big part of what's happening. Did this raise more questions for you? Like, what are you going to study next? Oh, definitely. Well, the thing that I wanted to, uh, that I'm in the process of, I have a, a very a great research assistant who's helping me with this, and we're looking at whether all of these conversations that I'm talking about are shaping the way that podcasters produce content. So one of the things um, I kind of casually observed is that some of the conversations are about the fact that they're not very representative, the podcasts themselves. They have traditionally been about white, middle-class women, and a lot of conversation has been had about <laughs> the fact that that's probably not very representative of who is at most at yeah. risk for violence. And so I'm looking at whether or not the podcasters are responding to that. And it's, there seems to be a shift in the representation in podcasts very early on, but that's what I'm seeing. There's such a contradiction, though, isn't it? Because women have a fear of violence, and that yet we're drawn to listening to these podcasts and watching these shows that are about that. Yes, it it does it does seem counterintuitive, um, but as we've already said, it's really about knowing and avoiding that situation so that you can control it and uh, make sure that you you and and a lot of women talk about their daughters too, how they watch this so that they can talk to their daughters about avoiding this situation. So, oh my goodness, yeah, it does seem counterintuitive, but there's also a a, a, a logic to it as well. Oh my, that's exactly what I did. I just had a bit of an epiphany while you said that. That's exactly what I went through with my daughter. Okay, well, good to know. Well, I haven't. <laughs> what was I that? haven't asked. I haven't asked many women, but I would guess that they're they're also encouraging their daughters to to consume true crime as well. Well, I feel better now. I feel like I'm not alone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. No, you're definitely not alone. <laughs> I do feel better about that. All right, that is Dr. Kathleen Rogers, professor at the University of the Fraser Valley School of Culture, Media, and Society.